2: at luckylandslots.com available to players in the US excluding Washington and Michigan no purchase necessary VGW group void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply
1: hello and welcome to the deadline election line podcast i'm ted johnson in washington i'm dominic patton in los angeles on this podcast we feature interviews with top political and entertainment figures as we spotlight where dc meets hollywood
0: And in just a bit, we're going to get some unique insights of what it's like to be inside the Biden White House and the Biden presidential campaign and to be outside it now. Kate Bedingfield, former communications director for the White House, is joining us.
1: We'll chat a bit later about the role of late night. Joe Biden's visit to Seth Meyers show was a reminder of the importance of candidates and paying attention to what is being said by comedians and satirists.
0: But before we get to talking about communications, both inside the White House and on late night TV, we're going to talk about Super Tuesday. Now, Super Tuesday is when dozens of states vote in their primaries. And this is traditionally where the deal is sealed for who the potential presidential nomination candidate is. But this year, we already know who those guys are. So we have to ask ourselves, is Super Tuesday so super anymore, Ted?
1: Well, obviously it's important, but... This time around, what's unique is the lack of suspense. The only question is whether Nikki Haley will win any states against Donald Trump and whether undeclared, uh, as we saw this past week, will make another showing against uh, Joe Biden. Um, Dominic, this this would not be the first cycle where things are kind of wrapped up by Super Tuesday, but I think it's kind of interesting the extent to which the networks are still covering this as if there's a whole lot of suspense left.
0: Well, I mean, look, they got to fill the TV hours with something, especially if you're on cable, CNN, Fox News, or MSNBC, obviously. I also think, though, too, is they're still playing a little bit of an old game. I mean, TikTok is where the majority of people under the age of 30 get their news. A lot of people get their news online, digital platforms, specifically social media platforms. So cable TV is really playing an old school game. And maybe they're double downing on this insofar as they're they're trying to kind of like, this is our place. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about whether or not it is still relevant. What's interesting, though, of course, is there's the other wild card, which is the drama, which is all the legal dramas that are going on with Trump and to a smaller degree with Biden and what have you. And I think that's playing out a role. And of course, there's the inevitable Donald Trump vice presidential pageant that's playing out as well. And I certainly don't see with either of these guys, Nikki Haley, Um, being the most predominant, I don't see anyone as emerging as, say, a a Senator Eugene McCarthy-like character who's going to suddenly throw everything up in the air. This is pretty much a done deal.
1: You know, we saw kind of a sense of of how things are being covered in this past week with the Michigan primary, and there was so much focused on that undeclared vote against Joe Biden in the state. For Mr. Biden, more than 100,000 voters casting their ballots for uncommitted, a sizable protest vote over the president's refusal to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. You know, I kind of bounced back and forth on whether it was blown out of proportion or whether it was kind of put into context. I think, you know, as it was happening, I kept wondering, you know, how big of a deal is this going to be in the end? But then the fact that by the next day, it was like everyone just kind of moved on from that story. I, I kind of thought, well, actually, you know, it was an interesting kind of sidelight in the election season. I'm not sure if that's going, if it's going to be something that is, uh, that is going to endure through the conventions. But it, it, it just struck me as, as kind of something new that I hadn't seen in cycles past.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess in one thing, obviously, like, look, a lot of this vote was clearly about the administration's policy on the war in Gaza. The president had kind of been, you know, smoke signaling to some degree that he wanted a ceasefire. A ceasefire could come by Monday. I think when he was with Seth Meyers getting ice cream, he talked about it as others did. It's rare for Joe Biden to to negotiate in public like that. So clearly there's something going on. Let's be honest, Michigan has one of the largest Muslim populations in the United States. People are exercising their right to express and dissent. I think as you go further into the campaign, this is going to end mainly because of demographics and also because the foreign policy initiatives seem to be having some effect. So we will see. What I think we are going to see, though, and this is what is concerning going into Super Tuesday, polling and and results are showing that there are very low turnouts right now. People just aren't enthusiastic about what is essentially a done deal. So I think there's a worry. There's a worry about whether or not you can get out the vote. And for two candidates who are so closely matched, at least at this point, though I do think some of Trump's numbers are inflated and primary voting does seem to show that, I think that that lack of enthusiasm, oh, that's got to be scary. And that's the kind of stuff the media don't like to talk about a lot because it's not something you can talk about for hours on, on cable TV, but that is real.
1: But I think it's going to be so definitive after Super Tuesday. And the question for networks is going to be, what do you cover from from that point until the convention or even the general election? Obviously, Trump's legal troubles are going to be uh, front and center. But my question for you is, does this only increase the likelihood that Trump's legal troubles are going to be viewed through a political lens?
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think Trump's legal problems that we've seen already with the Supreme Court now having this hearing for for April and his immunity. I mean, are we looking at a 2000 redux as well as a 2020? Maybe. I mean, certainly the the courts are going to play a big role in this campaign, but he's been using these court appearances as campaign rallies, which is not a bad idea for him because, to be honest, if you look at the wide shot on most of his rallies, he ain't getting the numbers he used to. Do you think that
1: also there might be some opening for a third party candidate? Because you're going to have a lot of reporters looking for something new to cover.
0: Well, I mean, I guess if if Elon Musk decides to run for president, you could have Ross Perot redux, but Elon's ineligible because he's born in South Africa. I don't think so. I think what we're going to have here is the slow burn campaign. You know, most people don't really start paying attention to this election until the conventions. Wrapping up this segment, I do think it's going to be interesting to see what the cable and network strategies are for the conventions. How they find a way to turn this into drama maybe with trump it's the vp selection maybe there's protesters i don't know
1: yes uh recent weeks have seen actually a lot of attention paid to the white house and the biden campaign strategy and there's been no shortage of advice on the receiving end of a lot of this kate benningfield is a cnn analyst and the former white house communications director she was also deputy campaign manager for the biden campaign in 2020. She is also the former chief spokesperson for the Motion Picture Association. So we both go way back with Kate. Kate, thank you for being here. Oh,
2: thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you guys.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate it, Kate.
1: First off, it always struck me that you were in a role where you were getting quite a bit of advice slash second guessing for what the president should be doing when it comes to communication strategy. I actually was listening to a podcast last night and within the podcast, uh, someone said the president should do more behind the podium and then later said he should be doing less behind the podium. So how did you handle that and what did you choose to listen to and what not to listen to?
2: yeah that is a great question. Uh, I will tell you uh, as somebody who now is out of that role, I can also uh, now say with full confidence it is a lot easier to offer that advice when you're like you know either Monday morning quarterbacking or you know hanging out on the sidelines lobbing in your advice so <laughs> there were times where the onslaught of conflicting advice would would make you a little crazy. I mean you know I always say about communications and I imagine you guys can, can very much relate to this. But, uh, you know, I would always say, you know, everybody thinks because they read the newspaper, they're a communications expert. So it's like everybody has their opinions on how you should be, you know, how you should be messaging and what way. Um, And they don't always have have an appreciation for the constraints that are, you know, behind the scenes or what it takes to put something together. I think also
0: a lot of Sunday morning armchair quarterbacks don't realize that what the president says can literally collapse the stock market.
2: Absolutely. Can move markets and start wars. I mean, that's you kind of carry that responsibility every single day as you're as you're thinking through what he's saying publicly, what the staff is saying publicly. Um, So so we would we would get a lot of uh, well-meaning advice. Look, your natural instinct, I think, just as a human is to sort of say, like, "I, I got it. We've got it. You know, thanks so much for your input. But you really have to train yourself to take a step back and think about when advice is coming from somebody who either you know, has years of experience in the, in the field, someone who is working in a cutting edge new you know, digital medium that maybe you don't have, and when I say you, I mean me, you don't have familiarity with, has a great idea that you haven't really thought about, you, know, you, t- you step back, you put it through the lens of what are the core things that Joe Biden is trying to communicate? And can this get us there?
0: So, Kate, you're in a different position now. You're currently a CNN contributor since leaving the White House. Um, And, you know, you are now the person who sometimes people see on TV giving advice to the president, giving advice to the administration about how they should handle policy, optics, et cetera, et cetera. To that point, you recently said that you think the Democrats and by that the administration need to be more aggressive about dealing with issues of the border, illegal immigration and crime. Earlier this week, we saw the president do an event uh, looking at crime and how crime has actually gone down for the most part since he and the vice president took office. And of course, this week, we've seen not only the president, but former President Donald Trump, both showing up in Texas at the border. So how is that now, from your perspective, being the, pardon me, but let's be honest, the armchair quarterback in this sense? Why did you offer that advice?
2: I, well, so as arm, armchair quarterback, guilty as charged, absolutely. But the reason I, I said that is because I think there's a huge opportunity here. I think Joe Biden can lead on this issue in a way that is incredibly effective. And, and here's what I mean by that. You know, the debate around the border is has, is hyper-partisan, right? I mean, you have, you know, particularly on the far right, obviously, banging away on, you know, doom and gloom messaging. You know, Joe Biden is somebody who has actually taken significant steps um, in the first two years of his, of his administration to try to curb the flow of illegal migration into the country, and who came to the table and said to Republicans, basically, put your money where your mouth is. Let's go. Let's figure this out. Went through an entire months-long process uh, of negotiating, only to have the Republicans turn around and walk away from the table.
0: The Republicans were at the table. The House just won't vote on it.
2: Well, who runs the House? (laughs) The Republicans.
0: I would say that's debatable at this point, to be honest.
2: Well, the House not some like mythical entity that does some third party that does whatever it wants. the Republicans run the house such as such as it is, to your point. Um, and so for for the Democrats to be in a defensive crouch uh, about uh, about immigration and about crime, which the Republicans have conflated immigration and crime in a way that, um, is really, I think, is really appalling, which I also said in, in that CNN conversation where I said Democrats should be tougher. You know, and so there's no need for Democrats to be in a defensive crouch on this. Joe Biden has called the Republicans bluff, and he should have no, no hesitation about saying, you know, there we had an opportunity to put in place these measures that um, you know, were some of the toughest measures that have been on the table in, in decades and the Republicans walked away because they want they want the political issue. They want to be able to score points. And so I, I think by going to the border, um, you know, this week, the same day Donald Trump is going, I think that's actually exactly what Joe Biden's doing. I think he is being aggressive. And, you know, he, he's also highlighting the human part of this problem. You know, what you hear from Republicans doesn't have
1: that. Kate, where do you think the president is most effective in breaking through? Because it has become increasingly more difficult just to get attention in this media environment, even for the most powerful person on earth.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. The moments that break through the most are Ones where he is interacting with people on a human level, you know, in somebody's living room, in somebody's church basement, in somebody's backyard. We did a lot of that during COVID, during the, you know, the, the COVID campaign of 2020, where we would send him and he would sit, you know, socially distanced from people in their backyards and talk to them about what was going on in their lives. I, I'm thinking back to the campaign now, too. You know, you saw him interact with a young boy from New Hampshire who had a stutter um, who said to him, you know, you're, you're an inspiration to me. And that interaction went viral in 2020 and, and people really connected with it. The other way we would think about breaking through um, from a media perspective is we had a hyper hyper focus on local media. You know, the ebbs and flows of the national media narrative are important. I'm not saying, you know, as a communications team for the President of the United States, you can just abandon the national media narrative. You can't, you shouldn't.
0: Oh, come on, why not? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> we had enormous enormous focus uh, on local media and we would every single day we would provide to the president a a compilation of clips of local coverage around the country the fact is people still trust their local newscasts more than they trust national news we would we really really prioritize that and um, you know we that paid dividends in the 2020 campaign and i and i think I hope it will pay dividends for the, for the biden campaign in 2024 too. go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment that's cloudoptimizer.com
0: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
2: lucky in line at the deli i guess i in my dentist's office
1: see value in the president coming out it happens about every day he'll come out and make a statement there'll be the white house press pool there yet it doesn't seem like that message often breaks through
2: it's a challenge it's a challenge um and this is where i would when i was in you know when i was communications director it would it would be so frustrating so that's all to say um you know, I, I think it is a good thing for the president to be continually uh, updating the American people every day on what he's doing and what he's focused on. It is true. It does not break through in the way, um, certainly that it, you know, it would have 20 years ago or 30 years ago when the media landscape was less fractured and people were reliably tuning into the evening news every night to see what had happened that day. Um, And so that's why the the team has to be more creative. And that's why you see them, you know, doing late night TV. They just did Seth Meyers um, this week. That's why you see them doing a lot of digital first content.
0: We want to talk about the president on Seth, which is kind of traditional. And let's be honest, president's been on Seth Meyers. Literally, that was why he was there. It was a 10th year anniversary. President obviously has done a lot of things. He was on Parks and Rec when he was vice president and otherwise. But, you know, recently we saw the White House administration go on to TikTok. Jason Kelsey or Travis Kelsey? Mama Kelsey. I understand. She makes great chocolate chip cookies. TikTok obviously being something that is a little bit in the political crosshairs at the same time. Is that really where it's at? I mean, we s- studies show us that when you look at what people under 30 certainly get their news from, TikTok is, to paraphrase Chuck D a Public Enemy, TikTok is the CNN of that generation. So where are the real hot points for an election campaign in 2024 to make their point? We saw certainly Trump in 2016, they were all over Facebook, which might've been Hillary Clinton's biggest problem when it really comes down to it.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, you, you said, is that where it's at? It's where one one audience is at. And the challenge in, a, you know, modern campaigning is you, you know, you have to cobble together different audiences from many different locales. So yes, to reach young people you have to be on TikTok. And I know there is, you know, obviously there are policy concerns, there are national security concerns that, you know, to me, that is for the uh, the national security apparatus uh, and the government to work through. So long as TikTok is, is uh, used as widely as it is in the United States, it's important for the Biden campaign uh, to be on it because they need to be reaching young voters. So, and by the way, young voters who are on TikTok are also getting absolutely deluged with misinformation and disinformation from our adversaries in Iran and China and Russia. So, you know, it's not, it is not a, um, I won't say battlefield, given everything going on in the world, but it's, you know, it's not a media battlefield that the campaign can just uh, abandon because, uh, you know, our adversaries are actively working it and and reaching young people every day. So you have to think about essentially the coalition of voters that you want to put together um, and then think about where to reach them. And the truth is, as important as young people are to uh, to this election, and they are absolutely critical, uh, the majority of people who cast their vote in 2024 uh, will be older. I mean, older people tend to vote with more regularity than young people. So the campaign has to think about, you know, how do we reach that audience? Facebook, which, you know, 15 years ago, I guess, 15 years ago, You know, was the new like up and coming social media is now actually one of the most reliable ways to reach middle aged and older voters, particularly in the suburbs. um, You know, in places that are going to be critical to uh, to the election. So, um, you know, it's really incumbent on the you can't. It's not as simple anymore as sending the president out to stand behind the podium, letting the news media cover it, and calling it a day. You know, that worked in in 1992. That doesn't work in 2024. So it's a it's a much more complex and labor intensive effort and you know you can't you can't afford to not use every arrow in your quiver because at the end of the day this election is going to be decided by probably tens of thousands of votes in you know five states
1: Kate what did you what do you think of the way the white house has responded to concerns about the president's age you saw that question posed to him during Seth Meyers. But at other points, I it just strikes me this is such a sensitive area. Sometimes I get the feeling that the president is like, do not touch that.
2: It's I will tell you, having worked you know, very closely for Joe Biden for a long time, it is not an off it's not an off limits answer. He you know, he <laughs> he's the first to say, you know, he knows he's 81 years old. It's not a secret. It's not it's not sensitive intel. I do think what the president did this week, um, what you saw him do on Seth, which he's he's done uh, he's done a little bit more of over the last few months too, um, which is to is to be humorous about it, um, and then pivot to the substance of his message, uh, you know, and and get in a dig at Trump and Trump's age. I thought that was a really effective way to handle it. You got
0: to take a look at the other guy. He's about as old as I am, but he can't remember his wife's name. Yeah. And, uh
2: obviously there's, you know, historic, there's historical precedents. Uh, you know, everybody loves to cite the Reagan debate where he talked about not exploiting his, his opponent's youth and inexperience. I mean, there's, there's historical precedent for that line, uh, you know, for, for the humorous approach working on this. And I think that's what people want to see. And here's the the last thing I'll say about age that I think frequently gets lost in the discussion about it is people actually want somebody with experience and wisdom and you know, Biden leaning into that as an affirmative message is also really good for him. Um, but, Kate, also at the same
0: time, and we really, really appreciate you being with us today. You were obviously, with the you were Joe Biden's vice presidential communications chief. Before that, you were at the MPA. Hollywood and the Democrats, very connected. Obviously, Hollywood, big donors to the Democrats. Do you think from a communications point of view, in such a divided country as this, where we constantly hear the belittling of so-called bi-coastal elites, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that that is as much a potential vulnerability for the president as much as it is a good ATM visit?
2: (laughs) Well, look, I think Hollywood is an iconic American industry for Democrats to embrace some of the beautiful storytelling that comes out of Hollywood that's about You know, inclusion and hope and possibility and telling stories of people who otherwise, you know, wouldn't see their story told. I mean, it's a place from which an enormous amount of inspiration comes for a lot of people all across the country. And I don't think Democrats need to run away from that. You know, Americans love the movies. That being said, I think the reality of campaign finance is challenging. I think if I know if Joe Biden could wave a wand and have publicly financed campaigns, he would. I know that he believes that the influence of big money, not just from Hollywood, but from all sectors uh, uh, of the American economy, is ultimately pernicious in politics. He he absolutely believes that. But you know, in an election of this consequence, when the stakes are this high, when you're running presumably against somebody who has you know a stated desire to dismantle democracy. You know, you can't, you, you can't walk away from using those resources. Uh, you know, the other side certainly isn't. And so it makes no sense to unilaterally disarm and say, you know, we're going to let Republicans spend all the, you know, oil money in the world on trying to win these elections and, and you know, and we're not going to fight back. You can't do that. So,
0: Kate, really, again, thank you for so much for joining us and giving us your insights and perspective. I want to ask you two last things, one of which is quite serious and one of which you may or may not think is. I'm... Um, What's the difference like now being outside the White House as opposed to all those years at Joe Biden's side?
2: Yeah, uh, I it is it's very different, and I still have my moments where I miss being there. I miss being able to you know do my little part to help. you know so many of my friends, so many good people who I've worked with for a really long time are still there working hard every single day and I as an American, I am so grateful to them. You know, for me, it was I have two little kids and I had been on the campaign from before day one and then through the first two years, of the White House. So, um, you know, there had really just been no break and everybody reaches their moment of exhaustion. And I definitely needed to step back and reorient my schedule around my children and have more time with my family and just breathe. So it is very different. I, you know, can, can sleep in. I'm not, I'm not, I don't wake up in the middle of the night in a, in a panic and, you know, I don't have to be at work at seven 30 every morning for my first meeting. And then at work through, you know, who knows 10 o'clock at night, depending on what's going on. Um, Don't have Saturday meetings. So that's really nice. It's nice to go to my, you know, my kids baseball game instead of uh, instead of a Saturday meeting, but it is also, it feels very um, strange to read things in the paper and feel like, you know, I wish I could help.
0: Are you going to join the re-election campaign at some point?
2: I don't know. I don't know. It's It has been really great to, um, like I say, to be able to truly prioritize my kids. And I want to make sure that I can continue to do that. Uh, so I, I don't know. But I'm their biggest fan rooting them on from the sidelines, for sure.
0: So to talk about biggest fans, this is always our last question. You, you know it's coming. Who is your favorite fictional president?
2: Jed Bartlett. Because the West Wing, so I was in high school and then college when the West Wing was airing. And I just, oh my God. I mean, it was like so formative to me. I'm sure it's not it's not unique, especially for people in my kind of cohort <laughs> generation. But having now had decades of experience in politics and even having the incredible good fortune to have the opportunity to work in the White House, you, you see from the inside how much more complicated and how much harder it is when you don't get to script the ending. But uh, I just, I loved everything about that show. I loved the optimism. I loved the humor, you know, I just thought it was so brilliant.
1: (laughs) Let Bartlett be Bartlett. Kate, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Oh, thank you. This was so much fun for me. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You'll denounce these people, Al. You'll do it publicly. And until you do, you can all get your fat asses out of my White House. As we mentioned, President Biden appeared earlier this week on Seth Meyers.
0: Welcome back, Mr. President. It's good to be back. Why haven't you invited me earlier? Well,
1: (laughs) Dominic, I actually found the president's visit to an ice cream parlor with Seth more interesting than the show itself. He broke some news and it was casual and a bit candid.
0: My hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire.
1: Do these late night appearances even matter much anymore?
0: I mean, I think these late night appearances they take on another level more than actually being, sitting on the chairs next to the desks. Of course, look, the president showed up because it, he showed up on the first Seth Meyers back when he was VP and he showed up with Amy Polder, who like, you know, from Parks and Rec and other, always called Joe Biden her hero. So she got a little bit of prophecy out of that and it was great. We did try to get him for our 10 year anniversary show. Obviously he's got a bigger job now, so he was unavailable. Oh, you couldn't get him? I couldn't get him, now. Oh, I could get him. Hey,
1: Mr. President?
0: But what's interesting is, you know, Late Night is all about the viral clips nowadays. That's where they really get their audiences, get their influence still. And I think the ice cream parlor visit was like a little extra thing you had. And that's what caught everyone's attention. And I think the president, he got criticized a lot about talking about Gaza while having ice cream. I think that's kind of silly. I mean, would you prefer the guy just didn't say anything? Um, You know, and we've talked about that with Kate. I, I think that you have to find the impact points nowadays. I mean, as Kate mentioned in our interview earlier, it's not like the old days of Cronkite, where you just have one person on TV, and the whole country watches them. To find that one way in which someone can talk to you, you know, Joe Biden's not going to put on a mascot outfit for the Philadelphia Flyers. But I think something like this that's more casual allows at least people to have some degree of interest. You can play that clip a million times. I will also say, As much as people want to criticize Biden, I always remember the famous Reagan thing where there was a famous, I think it was NBC, did a a story very critical of Ronald Reagan earlier in his uh, presidency. And then they phoned up, I think it was Andrea Mitchell, and phoned up the White House. And then Chief of Staff James Baker got on the phone. And Andrea Mitchell said, hey, look, I'm sorry I was so hard on you guys. But, you know, we really need to talk about your policies. And Baker supposedly laughed and said, oh, we don't care. Look great. All these pictures of him with flags and saluting soldiers. That's what we care about, the image. Biden at an ice cream parlor, that's his thing. He loves ice cream, talks about it all the time. That image is gonna go everywhere.
1: I think we'll know if this is working if Donald Trump starts to make overtures to some of these late night shows. I kind of doubt it because uh, he's been their number one target. He didn't do any of the late night appearances when he was president. Uh, It kind of broke with a tradition right there. But uh, there is an opening. He could go go on Greg Gutfeld's show. I wouldn't be surprised uh, by that at all. And that might say that, uh, that even when it comes to Donald Trump, he's looking At these kind of alternate ways of reaching voters. This is actually all the time we have for this show. I wanna thank you for listening. I wanna thank David Farino for handling the technical stuff uh, on our show as our producer. Thank you, David, so much. Dominic, we'll see you again on the next Election Line podcast.
0: Yes, and remember, you can always hear our Election Line podcast, not just on deadline.com, but also on Spotify, iHeart, and Apple Music. So subscribe. We love talking.